0: We exist? Were we created with a purpose, or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to the universe next door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. This show is a ministry of the C.S. Lewis Society and supported by gifts of listeners just like you. Join us. As we seek to see a generation captivated and transformed by the truth of Christianity, this is The Universe Next Door. Welcome to The Universe Next Door. For those of you who have seen the movie Shrek, that's going to come into play here because there is a scene in the movie Shrek where him and the donkey are talking, and he tells him that ogres are like onions, they have layers. And the way I see it, scripture is kind of the same way. Scripture has layers. And what I mean by that is you can do a basic reading of the Bible, and a lot of time you can kind of get the main surface picture, and you could pull a lot out of it, and you could take things that are going to change your life and change the way that you uh, view God. But there are so many more layers where it just continues to go deeper and deeper and deeper, where you can study a single chapter of a single book for the rest of your life and still learn new things about it. And that's why for some of you who have been uh, following Christ for a while, you'll know that no matter how many times you've read the Bible, whether you do like a six or 12 month plan every year, you've probably read it numerous times, but every time it's like you're reading a different book because it's just, you're seeing it on a different level each time. And for those of you who are new believers, you'll see the same thing uh, where you can take one passage and you can start with this understanding and then whether that understanding changes or, or just transforms or whatever it is, it's going to change over time and it's going to get uh, deeper over time. But you're also going to see new meaning to it that you didn't previously see. So this is the second part of our series about who Satan is. And we're going to do that very thing with these layers here. We're going to look at the temptation in the desert, which is basically Satan's introduction into the New Testament. Uh, and we're going to see that there are many layers to this. And there are many layers to the chapter that Satan is actually quoting to Jesus, and that chapter is Psalm 91. And if you haven't studied this before, I can almost guarantee you there are some things about Psalm 91 that you're going to learn that you probably didn't recognize previously that you may not have heard before, but it's going to make perfect sense to you when you see how Satan's taking these things and trying to use them against Jesus and, and to use them to fish for information. So we're going to be looking at, uh, we'll look at the parallel stories in Matthew 4 and Luke 4 of the temptation in the desert, but we'll also be looking at Psalm 91, and of course, as usual, we'll end up looking at a handful of other uh, references as well, so... That's the plan for today. If you haven't listened to the first episode of the series, which was last week, uh, titled The Serpent and the Guardian Cherub, you don't have to do that to understand what's going on here. It's not like this is going to be a waste of time otherwise. But if you go back and listen, you're going to know a lot more about who Satan is, and you're going to have a better picture of him and it's going to provide a backdrop for you to understand things that you learn about Satan. Because what we did was we looked at his introduction into the Bible in Genesis 3 at the fall, and then we looked at a couple of passages that really break down in in pretty good detail who Satan is, what his position was, uh, and what happened that caused him to fall. Of course, his, his pride and his mishandling of the beauty and wisdom God had created him with. So, Go back and check that episode out and share it with a friend. And also, don't forget to hit follow wherever you're listening. And that way you will be uh, alerted of every new episode, Monday nights at 6 p.m. I think we're probably going to wrap this Satan series up next week. And then we're going to have Paul Copan on to talk about uh, slavery and genocide. I mean, that could change, but that's the plan that we're going to talk about as of now. And if you haven't read his book, Is God a Moral Monster? It is an awesome book. It's it's an incredible book. So order that if you haven't done that or find it on audio or whatever. But that's the plan as of now. So we have a lot of exciting stuff coming up, especially over the next uh, couple of months as this show continues to transform. So make sure you're around for that. But as I'd said, what we're going to be talking about now is Satan's introduction into the New Testament. Which is where you see most of the stuff that you probably know about Satan. Uh, It took a figure like Jesus, the visible Yahweh, the physical God, to bring Satan to light, to show the world who he really was. In the Old Testament, a lot of the passages about uh, Satan were very cryptic. They were sort of vague. You, you really had to do some digging and put some things together to show, although there is some some great detail, but you, you really had to put the, some things together to show who he was. Well, when Jesus comes, he exposes Satan. He brings Satan to light. And we see Satan all over the New Testament named. He's named Satan, he's named the devil, he's named the, uh, the dragon or even the serpent in the New Testament. So Jesus really brings him to light. And it sort of reminds me of like, if you've ever had a cockroach or a palmetto bug in your house, one of those big terrifying bugs that I'm very afraid of. Uh, and and one of them is like on their back after you spray it, it's kind of like dying. Uh, and then you, if you're in the dark and you shine a light on that cockroach, it starts squirming. I don't know if you've ever done that. It's kind of a, a sick game to play, I guess. Sometimes I've done it accidentally, just so everybody knows. But but it's it, that's kind of how I picture Satan in the Old and New Testament. Like once you get into the New Testament, Jesus really just shines a light and shows who he is, exposes him completely. And he knows it. He knows his end is coming. We're going to cover that next week. But he knows what's going on. And so we have his introduction into the New Testament. We're going to look at Matthew 4 here. And we're going to show the story that a lot of us have heard, even if we're probably new to the Bible. And that is the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness or in the desert. Now, there's a couple things to keep in mind. Uh, One is that the wilderness is a place that you didn't want to be. don't want to be even now. But at Bible times... Uh, the wilderness is a place you didn't want to be. If you think back to the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, where they would uh, take the scapegoat and then the goat for sacrifice once a year to, to uh, basically reset Israel, to reset the temple in the most holy place, they would take one of those scapegoats and they would send that scapegoat with the sin on it after the priest had symbolically placed all of the sin of Israel on this goat, that Israel would be sent out Where? to the wilderness. And that's because the wilderness is not Israel. The wilderness is not Yahweh's inheritance. It's not God's inheritance. It's not where you want to be because the Israel is the place of demonic rule. It's the place of demonic influence. That's where sin belongs in the wilderness. So the wilderness isn't a comfortable place. Uh, The Israelites should have spent a very short time in the wilderness, but because of their a sin and their disobedience and their lack of trust in God. They ended up there for 40 years before entering the promised land. So that's what's going on here. Jesus is going out into the wilderness. And we're just going to read through uh, the story. It's only 11 verses here in chapter four, but let's just read the temptation in the desert story so we know what's going on. It says then, starting in verse one, that Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. So pause real quick. The tempter, this is Satan coming into the scene. Uh, Luke uses, at least in the English translation, uses the devil. And so we have Satan coming into the scene here in the New Testament for the first time. And he comes to tempt Jesus and he says, if you were the son of God, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Satan quotes scripture. He's quoting Psalm 91 each time here, and that's why we're going to look at Psalm 91. But just an overview here, this is what's going on. Satan is is trying to tempt Jesus in the desert, in the wilderness, and so he quotes scripture to Jesus, and Jesus quotes scripture back. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Verse 5, we pick up, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And just pause real quick. There's something, I'm going to show you something from an article that's very interesting about this point. Uh, but so he, sh- he takes him to this very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So what we have here is a little more than uh, what it just appears. Of course, Satan is trying to tempt Jesus. He's trying to test Jesus, but he's doing this in some very specific ways. And when we look at uh, Psalm 91 in just a minute here, it's going to make a whole lot more sense. But right off the bat, we notice some parallels with numbers and with concepts. For example, Jesus fasted 40 days in the wilderness. Well, Moses fasted 40 days on Mount Sinai. Another obvious parallel is that after uh, Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, he went into the Judean wilderness. Well, after uh, the Jewish people had crossed the Red Sea in the Exodus, they went into the Sinai wilderness. So it's the same sort of idea there. Uh, Jesus is tempted to turn rocks into bread. Of course, he's been fasting for 40 days and Satan approaches him and the first thing he brings up is food here. Uh, but he responds with, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Well, Moses said the same thing to the Jewish people when they were, when they were not faithful, when uh, they were testing God. He says the same thing to them. He says in Deuteronomy 8.3, he humbled you by letting you go hungry. He did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So, of course, we see some obvious parallels here. And one of the big picture, uh, I think, pieces to recognize here is that Jesus responds with Scripture every time because he is the author of Scripture and he is God and he trusts the Father. He has a perfect relationship with the Father. So he responds with Scripture every time. And of of course, we know uh, from the armor of God in Ephesians 6 that the word of God is the only weapon listed there. It's the sword. And so Jesus is using that sword here. He's using that weapon, the Word of God, to respond to Satan. Uh, so that's just kind of the, the big picture of what's going on here, but let's get into some detail now, because what Satan is doing is he's, he's not just testing Jesus, but he's fishing for information. Think about it. He sees the Messiah coming, and he must know what's going on, and he must be thinking, man, my time is up. I, I'm in trouble. I, I didn't know it would come this quickly. And so he's fishing for information. He's trying to get information out of Jesus. Now think about it. When he told him to jump off uh, and and told him, well, God will save your life. That's what the Bible says. Well, maybe he's pushing. Maybe he's fishing to say, well, if he jumps off of this thing and he doesn't die, I have to take that out of my options because that means I can't kill him. That means that killing the Messiah can no longer be part of my plan. But what does Jesus do? He gives him no information. He doesn't give him any information at all. He says, well, the word of God says, no, don't put God to the test. And that's all Satan gets. He doesn't get anything as he's fishing for information. But what we're going to see is it goes even deeper than this. Because while many have falsely viewed Psalm 91 as just a sort of uh, psalm to... Well, let me, let me pull it up so it makes more sense. But a lot of people have misunderstood uh, Psalm 91, especially recently with the, the coronavirus and with some other stuff going on. A lot of the time, uh, people have thought, well, Psalm 91 means that as a Christian, I'm protected from this. Uh, and, and that especially shows up in verse 3. But let's just start at verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So right off the bat, we do get this idea of protection from God. Um, That's pretty clear here. Now, verse three, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings, you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. Uh, You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrows that fly by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction. That wastes at noonday. Now, and then further down, Satan quotes um, in verse 11, for example, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Um, He he quotes from Psalm 91. But what we see here is it is a psalm of protection, but it might not be the kind of protection that we're thinking about. It's not just a physical battle song. This is a psalm referring to spiritual protection in spiritual warfare. And when I say spiritual warfare, I don't mean somebody like in their closet yelling at demons. I mean like actual spiritual warfare going on in a realm that we cannot see. Actual spiritual battles. Because um, when we look at the terms used here, deadly pestilence, when we look at the term fowler, these are both known in Jewish antiquity, in Israelite history, as demonic forces. So this isn't just talking about a disease. This isn't just talking about somebody catching birds or, or using uh, the example of whoever the author of the psalm is. The author, there's, no, there's no author attributed to this in the Hebrew text, though in the Septuagint, it's attributed to David, and we're going to get into why I think that is in a moment. But these two ideas here, the, deadly, the pestilence and the fowler snare, both of these were known as demonic forces. And for those of you who have ever researched the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, you'd have to be kind of a nerd to go into detail, but if, you, if you've if you researched the Dead Sea Scrolls, you'll know that it wasn't just biblical writings found, there were thousands of other uh, manuscripts in there, and so it wasn't just biblical writings, though we have every book in the Old Testament except for Esther in there um, that have been discovered. But what you will know if you look into this uh, is that Psalm 91 was found in a jar in the caves of Qumran, and in this jar were four other psalms or writings, not biblical writings, that were all exorcist psalms. So Psalm 91 was in a jar with five writings, including Psalm 91. The other four were exorcism psalms. Do you think that's ironic? Do you think that's ironic that Satan is quoting an exorcism song psalm to Jesus while he's trying to fish for information? While he's thinking, oh my goodness, I think this guy really is the Messiah. Let, let me, okay, now that I know that, let me go see what I can find out. Remember, he's had roughly 30 years to study Jesus and to follow him around up until this point. And it's not until Jesus starts his ministry, that he's beginning his ministry after his baptism, that Satan approaches him and tries to fish for information. So the pestilence and the fowler uh, snare are demonic influences, they're demonic spirits in the Old Testament. And we talked about this briefly a few weeks ago, but if if you're under the impression that Israelites who uh, went off after other quote-unquote gods, if you're under the impression that they were just worshiping pieces of wood and stone, that's not what was going on. And if you have the Deuteronomy 32 worldview in mind, it makes that clear because we've, we've looked at this in the past, but if you, if you go look up Deuteronomy thirty-two seventeen, and you actually look at the terms uh, translated from Hebrew, you'll see that not only are demons referred to as Elohim in that passage, but we see in that passage that when Israel was worshiping false gods, they were actually worshiping demons. They were worshiping the corrupted sons of God. So they weren't just worshiping nothing. They weren't just worshiping these imaginary things. And when we see so many times in the Old Testament that Yahweh is greater than any other god, there's none like him. It's not just saying he's greater than no one. It's not just comparing him to nothing. It's, it's comparing him to these fallen sons of God, the B'nai Elohim. And, and we're going to do a whole thing on that down the road. I promise you that because uh, I'm very much looking forward to it. But for now, just understand that in the Old Testament, these demonic forces were well known. Uh, not necessarily by the name demon. In fact, the the term that we translate into demon in English, uh, she-demon Hebrew, is only used three times in the Old Testament. It's it's Deuteronomy 32.17 that we mentioned. It's Psalm 106.37, and I think it's Leviticus 17.7, though that term is a little different. Uh, But this was a concept that is well-known, these corrupted, these fallen sons of God that people were worshiping. And so this is a well-known concept um, in the time of Israel. Now, this becomes even more significant because while we had mentioned that uh, the Hebrew text doesn't put a name on Psalm 91, the Septuagint attributes it to David. And I believe one of the reasons for this is that during the intertestamental period, the period of time between the Old and New Testament, when uh, the spirit of Israel had departed from Israel, or the Spirit of God had departed from Israel, I'm sorry, Uh, they had all kinds of writings. You'll know them as the Apocrypha writings, and there were other writings too. They're very interesting, but that's known as the intertestamental period because it's in between the Old and the New Testament. Well, if you look at uh, what was written at that time and what went on during that time, it's where we got Hanukkah and a number of other things, but it's very important because when you think about Jesus in the New Testament, and when you think about the Old Testament, where you look at the Old Testament and not a single demon was ever cast out of anybody, did you notice that? When you look at the Old Testament, you never see an exorcism. You you never see demons being cast out of people. But you do see it all the time in the New Testament. You see Jesus doing it left and right. And so you have to ask yourself, when we don't see demonic uh, exorcisms in the Old Testament, but we do see them in the New Testament, how did the people know that this would, this is what the Messiah would come to do? Is there a verse referring to that? Is there a picture of that in the Old Testament? How did people say, wow, look at this Jesus guy, he's, he's casting demons out of people, and that's what the Messiah should be doing, so we should follow this guy. How did they know to do that? Well, this is where the intertestamental period is very, very important. And it, it, there's a lot going on here, but what this topic kind of boils down to in this area is that David and Solomon were believed to have the power to cast demons out of people or to cast evil spirits out of people. Now, of course, there is some Old Testament precedent for this. For example, in First Samuel 16, uh, David could pray, play his instrument. I, I never know how to say it right. Is it lair? Is it lyre? L-Y-R-E? Nobody can come talking to myself, so nobody can correct me on the air, but I don't know how to say it. Uh, but he was playing his instrument, and and when he played it, the evil spirit would leave Saul. So there is some precedent in, in different areas of the Old Testament, but this was a really big belief during the intertestamental period that David and Solomon had power over demons, that they were able to cast demons out of people, that demons were afraid of them. And so when people look at that and they say, well, if demons are afraid of David— if he can cast demons out of people, if he has this exorcism power in his hands, well, then of course, the son of David, Jesus the Messiah, has to be able to do these things. He has to be able to perform those things. And so that's where that idea comes from, uh, of people recognizing who Jesus was in the, in the New Testament. And this goes along with just trying to put yourself in the shoes of the people during biblical times, because it wasn't written in 2022. It was written at a time when people had very specific worldviews, very specific experiences, and those are necessary, as we said at the beginning of the episode, to continue to go deeper and deeper and to peel back those layers to see what's really going on in Scripture. And it's not only a, uh, a new invention to say um, that Psalm 91 is a exorcist psalm. Uh, If there's actually a pretty good article about it, if you go to Logos, Bible Logos, you don't need an account for this. Uh, But there's an article written that's called uh, Demons DSS, which is Dead Sea Scrolls, in Jesus, Psalm 91 in the need for text-critical pastors. Actually, I'll just link that in the description, too. So if you're listening over the radio, it's Demons, DSS, and Jesus, Psalm 91, and the need for text-critical pastors. It's on uh, Logos.com. But uh, otherwise, if you're listening over podcast, I'll link it in the description so you can click and follow. It's a great article, and there's more like this, too. But this isn't an idea that just popped out of nowhere. Uh, Jerome, who you'll you'll know uh, to have written the Latin Vulgate, held this view. Uh, Augustine, we all know Augustine. Uh, some of you may know it as St. Augustine, but Augustine is um, an early church father, very important in church history, and he also held this view. Uh, we know that the people in the intertestamental period going into the New Testament would have held this view. So this is, this is the view that was held. This is not just uh, something that's popped up out of nowhere. So Satan, of course, recognizes this. And you have to keep in mind that Satan knows a lot more true doctrine than you and I do. Satan was in the presence of God. He was a guardian cherub. We know both from Scripture and from other cultures around Scripture at the time, or uh, around where Scripture was written, that the guardian cherub guarded the throne room of God. That was the position of guardian cherubs, or guardian cherubim is the uh, the plural. But this is what Satan's position was. Okay, he was in the presence of God. He's had thousands of years now to study human beings. He's had thousands of years to study Scripture, presumably. He was in God's presence uh, again, presumably during creation because job thirty eight tells us that the sons of God were there uh, at creation, and so you know he he 's had a long time to study this stuff he knows a lot more than we do he was he was created to be incredibly wise like we saw in Isaiah fourteen and ezekiel twenty eight and so he knows more true doctrine than you and I do, and that should scare us and i don 't think it 's any coincidence that satan chose psalm ninety one which is often viewed as a physical battle psalm, but really it's a spiritual battle song. There's so much more to it, and he knows this. It's not a coincidence that he's quoting uh, an exorcism psalm. Now what's also really interesting, and this is just a little bit of a point that I'd have to think about more, but but it certainly is interesting, is that if this psalm is is written to a king, uh, which it may be either way, whether it's a physical battle psalm uh, or a spiritual battle psalm, it certainly may be written to a king. I'm going to read you a little part of this article here that I mentioned. And this is incredibly interesting. So let's just read a, a, a paragraph or two. He says, Psalm 91 is quoted partially in Matthew 4, 6, which we just read, when Satan seeks to test Jesus. Golden Gay remarks that the idea of Psalm 91 being addressed to the king of Israel, similar to Psalm 20 or 121, makes sense on the eve of battle as the king stood in need of rescue and protection. So we have that so far. This psalm would make sense uh, being read or recited on the eve of battle as the king is in need of of rescue or protection. Which, by the way, demonic forces during the intertestamental period, those were the two things that they were known for. Uh, They were known for possession and harassment so this is what they would have been acting uh, asking for protection from in a spiritual battle so golden gay then asserts that this view adds bite to the tempter's quoting of the psalm satan inviting jesus to claim promises addressed to the king or to the messianic king yet there is nothing to require reference to the king and no doubt the promises could be applied to a governor and to individuals So there's nothing authoritatively stating this is written to a king, and that's why I'm pointing out that it's just an interesting point to think about. But he said this could add just another layer Uh, when Satan is quoting this psalm, when he's telling him, look at all these kingdoms, and he's really quoting to him a psalm that would have been addressed to a king, and here the messianic king. Uh, and he picks up and says, in fact, if the didactic portions of Psalm 91 are to be taken as seriously as those like Saborin and Briggs would lead us to believe, then it would in fact be just as applicable to any individual who made their refuge in the Lord by abiding in him. And so that's really the main purpose of the Psalm 91. It's not about protection from getting sick or from getting COVID or from getting, you name it. It's protection ultimately from demonic forces. And that's something where you don't have to reconcile and say, well, maybe it means when we get to heaven, we won't have any of these things. Of course, we know there'll be no sickness and death. We know in Isaiah 25, 8, every tear will be wiped away. Well, that's all true, and it could be ultimately pointing to that. But with this view in mind of spiritual warfare, there's no need to to delay the blessing of God that's mentioned in this passage, because what it tells us is what most Christians already believe. And that's that if you have put your faith in Yahweh, if you have put your faith in Christ and you trust him, well, then you have protection. You have refuge. You stand in the shadow of the Lord. He is your, your protection from these demonic forces. They can't touch you. They can't inhabit you. They can't attack you. So this is something that every Christian can apply to their life immediately. That uh, upon salvation, demonic forces now have no power over you. There's nothing they can do to you. They can't possess you. They can't. They can't uh, take over your life like they could have previously done. And so that's a psalm that can apply to anybody. But uh, anyway, that that point about the kingship thing is really interesting when you consider the kingdoms and the glory that he was being showed. And that Satan very well could be just quoting him. Uh, a, a psalm that would have been written to a king. So just something to, to think about there. Uh, now we'd mentioned earlier that if Jesus had jumped off the ledge and the angels had caught him, Satan would have recognized, well, I guess the Messiah can't die, so I have to take that off my list and I have to try another route. But Jesus knew exactly what needed to happen. Jesus knew that he needed to die. Jesus knew that he would be crucified and that he would raise from the dead to bring us with him to give us salvation. But he's not going to allow Satan to know this. He's not going to reveal any information to him, and he's going to leave him knowing even less than he did when he got here. And you have to think about what a crazy situation this is. You know, like how long has it been since Satan actually stood in the presence of God? And now here he is in the wilderness, standing right before God who has become flesh, Christ and his humanity, who, of course... Is God, he's God in uh, both God and man, truly God, truly man, The the fullness of the deity dwells in him is what Colossians 2 tells us. So for the first time and who knows how long, maybe it's been since the garden, maybe it's been since he's cast out of the uh, divine council, that this is the first time Satan is now standing in God's presence again. Uh, And and remember, I mentioned, I think I did mention this last week. Yeah, it was last week, if you go toward the end of the episode, uh, that I don't believe that uh, the character in Job, the Satan, or the adversary, or the accuser in Job, is... Satan. So I'm taking that off the list of, of him being in God's presence at that time. I don't think Satan after being cast out of the garden after being thrown out of the council still just entered the presence of God and was working side by side with him. I don't think that makes any sense. And we mentioned that the the Satan or the accuser, that's that's not a name in the Old Testament. It is uh, used as a term and it's even used of God and of David in the Old Testament. So you can't just make a blanket statement that every time you see the Satan Uh, It's just referring to Satan in the Old Testament. It never actually is in any of those instances. So I don't believe he was in God's presence at that time. And so who knows? It might have been since he was cast out, since Jesus saw Satan fall like heaven from lightning. This might be the first time Satan is now again standing in the presence of God. And you have to wonder what's going through his mind. If in that moment he just, he knows he's been defeated and he's looking for any way out that he can find. If he's thinking this is, this is my last chance. I need to figure something out here. So I need some information, but Jesus doesn't give him any. And what he does get is what I think can be a double meaning here. uh, Like we mentioned with that layer sort of thing, where he says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Now, of course, Jesus could just mean this in a plain meaning where it's like, well, I'm not going to test God. But is he also saying to Satan, I am God standing in front of you. Don't put me to the test." So I think this has sort of a double meaning going on here because he's saying, don't test me. And he's also simultaneously saying, I'm not going to test the father. And he gives him no information. Satan leaves with nothing. So Jesus' mission is complete. It's perfectly completed. But Satan's mission, the mission he's given himself, it's failed. It's fallen right on its face. It's led to nothing. Jesus is a destroyer of demonic forces He is a destroyer of quote-unquote gods, and he is a destroyer of Satan who's standing in front of him, and Satan knows this, and Satan is trying to find a way out of it, but he doesn't, and instead, Jesus goes to the cross, he's crucified, he's killed, he takes on the sin of the entirety of the world, he satisfies the wrath of God completely, and he raises from the dead in order to bring us with him into eternal paradise, into the presence of God forever, where there is no suffering, where there is no Satan, where there are no demonic forces, and where ultimately we're going to be protected. We are going to live and abide in the shadow of the Lord for all of eternity. So I've tried to keep this brief and focused on the temptation in the desert uh, and on Psalm 91, which is where where Satan quotes in that second temptation. Uh, But we are going to continue next week With the story of Satan in the New Testament and especially his end and his demise, and so we're going to continue that in the episode next Monday. And as I'd mentioned, after this series ends, which is after probably after that episode, we're going to release our episode with Paul Copan, where we're going to talk about slavery and genocide in the Bible, how a Christian should view and defend uh, the accusations often made against Scripture and against Christianity, and against of course God Himself. So that's going to be an awesome episode. And then we're going to get into some Christmas stuff in December where we're gonna show some of the specific promises and details of the Christmas story both in the nativity and, of course, uh, the purpose of Jesus coming and the incarnation and all that. So that's one of my favorite topics. It's going to be a ton of fun, but make sure you share this series with a friend. The last episode in today's episode, it can start a conversation, it can give you something to talk about, and if they're already a believer, then it's just going to help them understand their enemy better, and it's going to help them understand scripture and the biblical worldview better. Uh, So thank you so much for doing that, and don't forget to hit follow so you're alerted of every new episode. Well, thank you so much. We'll see you back here next week on The Universe Next Door.